concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realized that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Glad we had some joyful songs to sing. <laughs> And I, I realize that this journey is a little bit painful at the beginning, but I, I guarantee you it will brighten up as we move along. But that is Solomon's intent. And it is interesting that as I was thinking about Ecclesiastes, some thoughts came to me. Thoreau, he made the statement that most men live lives of quiet desperation. I would say that there is some truth to that, especially when we look at Ecclesiastes and the valuation that Solomon gives. And at the same time, there are those in the world that constantly say that there's a light at, at the end of every tunnel, right? So you just keep hoping and keep looking for it. But then you have people like Murphy who respond to that and say, yeah, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's a headlamp of the oncoming train. And this is the journey that Solomon takes us down, but truly he is going to take us to a good place. And I had these two thoughts this morning, and they're not in your notes, but around 3 o'clock this morning, I had these two thoughts about Solomon in regards to Ecclesiastes, and I'm just going to give them to you now, and then I'll embed them in your notes for next week. Two thoughts that came. First is that Solomon was a man who was moved by a mind that was painfully full of the disappointing nature of all things viewed apart from God. That is the first part of Ecclesiastes. This is a painful thing for him, but it is because in the end he understood the, the magnitude of God, the necessity of God for us as human beings to understand and to find meaning and purpose. But at the same time as I thought about this, this thought also came to me that Solomon was moved by deep sympathy for his fellow human beings. He knew that there were others who were out there who were touched by the same painful feelings that he was experiencing as he meditated and pondered these truths. And people who were going through the same suffering that he went through, although in their different ways. And so there is this intent behind what Solomon does as he takes us on this journey. And really the, the refrain for this morning is this. It is a striving after wind, he says, and this is a twofold conclusion he comes to at the end of chapter one. And this is where he begins his own personal pursuit of the things that he invested himself in. I find it interesting that he begins with the mind first, wisdom and knowledge, and then he moves in chapter two to pleasure. He starts with the internal and then he moves to the external. But he is going to apply himself to all of these things and ponder them. But this is the refrain that comes. So the section builds like this. 
And it goes like this. The first part is verses 12 through 15. The second part is 16 through 18. You'll notice that in verse 12, he mentions Jerusalem. And then in verse 16, he's going to mention the fact that he ruled over Jerusalem and those who ruled before him. He is going to end these sections with this same refrain. Verse 14, it is a striving after wind. And then in verse 17, it is a striving after wind. And then verse 15 and verse 18 are these proverbial statements that he gives that conclude each section. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be counted. That leaves you in a state of despair. And then in verse 18, because in much wisdom there is great grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. That is the structure of this section, but it is interesting that in verse 14 he makes this statement that it is striving after wind. And I will tell you that in the Hebrew it could be translated shepherding the wind. And actually, it's a little bit better of a translation of the Hebrew because he is going to use this phrase as it runs through here, but the Hebrew word that the word striving comes from is the word ra'ah, which means to shepherd or to pasture. And he is going to use this phrase through the first part of this letter all the way into chapter 6. He's going to use it nine times. So in other words, what he's suggesting at the beginning of this book is that Ecclesiastes reveals that the search to the answer of life's conundrums is like trying to shepherd the wind. And it's like trying to push the wind into the pins that we have formed ourselves. I mean, the imagery that Solomon lays out for us, right? Trying to shepherd the wind, an impossible task. And this is where he is going to lead us in the first part of this book. And he's going to take us on this journey with him, but... He depicts how endlessly men and women analyze life without actually living it for God. There are those who look for meaning and for purpose. And yet, without pursuing God, they don't understand the true meaning and purpose of things. So we've seen the introduction, the thesis statement that comes in verses 1 through 3. And now we start to look at this first catalog of vanity starting in chapter 1 verse 3 as he asks the question, 4 through 11, we saw the vanity of the natural world. And it's interesting to me, the different roles that Solomon is going to take. First, it's the scientist. And he is valid in doing this. If you read 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 33, he's written manuals on botany. He's written manuals on biology. He has studied all the different elements of science, all kinds of Plants, trees, animals, you name it. He has studied these things. He has written on these things. So if you want to speak as a scientist, he definitely had that, those credentials. And, but it's interesting how he's going to do this for us. He's going to speak as a scientist, a historian, and next as philosopher. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. But he alone can speak from all of these different angles, which is really interesting because what he helps us to understand is that we find in the world people from these different realms trying to give meaning and answers to life. And Solomon's going to show us the futility of that when they try to do it without God. So he begins as the scientist, and the scientist can make an observation of the phenomena of the natural world. 
They can define physical laws, and they do. These laws have always operated, but when it comes to the issue of origins or ultimate end or purpose, no one in the realm of science who is an unbeliever who looks at it from an earthbound natural perspective can give us any answer in regards to origin or purpose. Not one. It's impossible. So it's interesting because evolution would suggest that they can tell us the issue of origin, but they cannot answer the question of origin legitimately. And Solomon understands this as he looks at the natural phenomena around him. And I was thinking about this, the natural realm. It is so easy for us to, to sort of slip into this way of thinking, naturalism. If you think about how, for most of us as adults, if we went to public school, we were trained to look at the world without God. Think of all the subjects we studied, math, science, history, every single one of them without God in the picture. And this is what we were schooled in. And, and if we were a believer when we were going to public school, then we, in a way, sort of learned how to live this sort of twofold life. I'm at school in this neutral realm, which isn't neutral at all, but I'm at school in this neutral realm. I'm learning all of these subjects, but without God in the picture. And then I go to church on Wednesday, and I go to church on Sunday, and if I do something during the week with friends or so on, and that's where I get my relationship with God. But that's not really the world. But it's interesting how that affects us then as we become adults because we see things through a natural eye. We understand all the natural causes of things, but we don't acknowledge God in the background. We don't even acknowledge Him as the ultimate source of things. I mean, if you think about our conversation, when we think about the weather, it did this, or it did that, or it's sunny today, or it's rainy today, right? You know that in the Old Testament, they would never refer to it that way. It was always God sent the rain, and God sent the snow, and God sent lightning, and God shaped the day, and He is the one who controls the constellations, and He is the one who moves everything. He makes the grass grow. But we have been so programmed in our world to see everything from a natural point of view that we don't even realize that we lock God out of the picture in a lot of areas of our life, if we're not careful. And Solomon helps us to understand this. He also challenges us in regards to being a historian. Every generation looks for that satisfying novelty as he talks about in verses 9 and following. And somehow that there is going to be some new thing that, that this next generation is going to discover that's going to give us an understanding and meaning and purpose for life. We have all of this stuff going on towards outer space, right? That somehow some great discovery is going to come about meaning and purpose and where we came from and all of this stuff. We're going to find it in outer space, right? We're going to find it with aliens, but we're never going to find it there. But Solomon says this is the futility of it all. They keep looking for this next novelty and they analyze and they analyze and you got to understand that there is no invention that is ever going to help man break out of this cyclical existence. There is no way that he is going to free himself from all of this. Man has not found it. Man will not find it no matter what generation comes along. And every new generation thinks they're the greatest. The other ones are bypassed and we are the great ones now. And we're going to discover everything. But here's the thing. 
The questions that have been unanswered still remain unanswered. And in reality, there's just more questions than there are solutions. Solomon says, if we keep looking at it from under the sun. And so in verses 9 through 11, he says, there's nothing new. The past is the future and the future is the past. H.A. Ironside made this statement, pastor of, of Chicago's Moody Church. He said, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, then it's not new. He understood that man, when we look at things, it's really just a recombination of the old. Man doesn't really create. It's kind of odd to me, and I find it fascinating that we use that word, especially in the realm of art. I created a masterpiece, or I created this. The only one who truly creates is God himself. And so Solomon is going to say again in chapter 3, verse 15, that which has been is now, and that which is to be has already been. There's nothing new. Thomas Edison, when he spoke of his inventions, he said it's merely just bringing out the secrets of nature and applying them to the happiness of mankind. In other words, these things were already there. I just uncovered them. I didn't discover them. I didn't even invent it. We look at the things that we have today, say the computer. What was it based off of? God's design of the brain. You think of all of the things that we think that we are the ones who've come up with, but really all we do is just borrow from God. So Solomon is going to take us the next step in verses 12 through 18, the vanity of wisdom and knowledge. He's going to examine works and then wisdom and knowledge, and he's going to look for a way to break out of this monotony and meaninglessness of life, but he's going to find that there is nothing under the sun. So he, in this broad context, he's going to lay out for us. First, he's going to give us his own personal testimony. And this starts in chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 23. And then he's going to give us the warning of an outcome up front. Because just in case there are those who want to follow along in his footsteps and try all of these different avenues, he's going to let us know up front, look, it's a worthless thing. Before he takes us on the journey, he tells us the outcome. It's striving after wind. And just in case we missed it the first time, he tells it us again. It's striving after wind. All is vanity. It's really interesting to me, right? You go back to Adam and Eve in the garden. If they just did what God said. And I ask myself that question with my kids. Why would you just trust me? <laughs> if I tell you this is what's going to happen when you do this, then that's what's going to happen. Why won't you just take my word for it, save yourself the heartache, and just believe me, right? So this is what Solomon wants us to do. Look, you don't need to go there. I've been there. I've seen all of this stuff. I've weighed everything, and I'm going to tell you it's all worthless if you do it without God. And he's going to then give us his conclusion in verses 12 through 26 in chapter 2, and that's where we get happy time. But first, we have to go through the difficult stuff. So he comes to us as Kohelet, the philosopher. He is going to confront us with the situation of life that if we put it in today's vernacular, it would be called existential. And some have referred to him as the OG of existentialists, and I would suggest he isn't, but he's pretty close. But he is going to talk about the issue of experience. In other words, man exists in a series of experiences that cannot discover any onward view or meaning in any of them. 
And this is what Solomon is going to help us to understand. Look, I've done everything. I, whether it's intellect and all the things that you can learn and understand and know about the world, he's been there, done that. Not only that, but he has searched the earth with sending ships and men out to scour the world to, to find answers to these questions and bring all of these things back. And I have collated all of this stuff and I've laid it out and I've thought through everything and I've come up with this conclusion. And so really what he leaves us with to ponder is, well, what are we supposed to do in light of this? And there's two things really we can do as man. We can exist and make the most of what comes, or we can drop out altogether. We can do like the hippies in the 60s, right? Light up and drop out, and that's what many of them did. There are those who just don't want to ask themselves these questions, that they don't want to know the meaning of life, and they don't want to understand purpose and so on. And instead of trying to strive after this and, and find some answers, they're going to just drop out. But it may seem easy to abandon and just to drop out, but one will find that ultimately they're going to wrestle with these ultimates and they are going to experience the pricking of conscience they will be reminded that they are human being and they are not animal-like. We find those today are doing the same thing. They, they are dropping to the level of animal-likeness rather than staying human and trying to figure out the complexities of the world. Yet there are those we will meet who really do believe that there is meaning in life and they if they could only discover it, but we know that they are fallen human beings who need life and illumination that comes from God alone. So Solomon takes us on this journey, and he begins with the futility of human achievement, investigation of works, and he is supremely qualified to be this detective. He lays out for us three things in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. He has preeminent insight, he has preeminent dominion, and he has preeminent location. Solomon was unique in that he had so many resources for investigating life. I mean, if he was in the world today, he would be on the front page of Forbes magazine. He had more money than he knew what to do with. And it's interesting that these kind of listings that Solomon gives here about his exploits and the things that he's experienced, this is very common in ancient Near Eastern writings. But what's interesting about most of the writings that we find from Amenhotep or Tiglath-Pileser is the fact that there tends to be hyperbole. They exaggerate. And it's known that they do this. And they even, in an obvious way, rewrite history. If you read the works of Josephus, you'll see this. He does this. He exaggerates because he's giving a defense of his people, the nation of Israel, the Jews. And so he tends to, to exaggerate things and use hyperbole. And you can tell where he's doing this. Well, it's typical for this to happen in these kinds of listings of kings that lived in the time of Solomon. But here's what's amazing. Solomon doesn't use hyperbole. Everything that he lays out here, the things that he's experienced in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and following, these are things that he legitimately did because we know that elsewhere in Scripture, it affirms the fact that he did these things. He had the resources that he has, and he was able to experience the things that he experienced. And it's important for us to understand this because some might read Ecclesiastes and say, well, he makes a pretty bold statement in verse 13. I seek and explore by wisdom all that has been done under heaven. And you might say, could he really have done this? Can one man do this? Solomon could. 
He had all the means by which to do this, and therefore he did do this. So therefore we can take him at his word. So when we witness to unbelievers and we take them on a journey through Ecclesiastes, we can say to them, look, there has been one man who has walked the face of this earth who has experienced all of these things and who uniquely was able to do so, and he can help us learn from his lessons. We know from history and from Scripture that he sent out emissaries to India, Egypt, Ethiopia, all the way to Greece, to the remotest parts of the earth, seeking out the perplexing questions. He had ships, he had men at his command, he had wealth, he had funds that he could send out these expeditions to search out these things and to come back. And not only that, but he also had the wisdom and the intellect. Even though it was tainted by his disobedience, he could still take these things and collate them together and reach a conclusion, and he has done that. I have searched everything under the sun. I have searched all of these things out, and this is my conclusion, he says. And we can take him at his word. And God would not record it in his holy scriptures if it were not true. So Solomon helps us to understand in verse 13 that this mission is impossible. This mission, if you choose to accept it, it's going to be impossible. It is to discover the secret of life. So Solomon states in verse 13, And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven, and it is grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. This is something that God has given us to do. Someone has well said that it is better to be Socrates and discontented than to be a contented swine. I think some people in society would rather be a contented swine. They don't want to know the meaning of life. They don't want to take that painful journey. They don't want to go through what you need to go through as you analyze and scrutinize and seek to understand. Some don't want to ask the hard questions. Like Solomon asked in verse 3, Is there any profit to the things that we do in life? Is there any profit to my toil? Most of us don't want to ask ourselves these hard questions, but we find that we need to ask them. And so Solomon is going to take us on this journey. What's interesting here in verse 13 is that this is the first time that Solomon mentions God, Elohim. I find this intriguing because it is from this point on that the name of God is going to be used in increasing measure. In other words, the more that Solomon dives into his studies and thoughts and, and as he weighs the circumstances of his life, the more that God is going to take front and center in his thinking and processing. It's almost as though he takes us on this journey, right, of going from someone from a completely earthbound, earthly mentality, right, from mere hedonism, as he's going to take us into chapter 2, and then he's going to move us towards theism, and the centrality of God in life. But this is something that God has given uniquely to man and has denied it from the animal world. This is what makes us distinct. Not only are we created in the image of God, but God has given us distinct things to do as human beings that are not given to any other creature on the face of this earth. Therefore, some may want to think that we come from apes, but I, I, I have a hard time accepting. It's interesting because I, I went junior college. I was going to go into the military, and they said I needed to, to get some more college credits under my belt. So three classes I took at junior college, 
I took philosophy, anthropology, and sociology all at the same time. My philosophy class was taught by a man who was a student of my father's at Talbot Theological Seminary, and after he graduated, he had renounced the faith, but he still went to church in case he was wrong. <laughs> and so he taught the philosophy class, and then I had anthropology, and seriously, if I wasn't a believer, I, I might buy into anthropology, because my teacher, she looked like she descended from apes. I, I'm sorry, I know it's a horrible thing to say, and we had one of our main projects is we had, I had to go to the San Diego Zoo, and I had to watch the primates, my ancestors, right, as they clean each other and all that kind of stuff. But this is the journey the world goes on, and this is what they wrestle with, and Solomon says all of this stuff is void. To try and do this without God leaves you with great emptiness. So he's going to take us on that journey because really man is striving to break through to this transcendental idea, but he's not going to do it in and of himself. He can't break out the cycles of life. We're not like animals because they live in the, in the circle of their instincts and drives, but man made in the likeness of God looks for meanings and seeks to understand so that he can control his instinctive desires. This is what man does. And this is how God has given us to pursue life. So Solomon says, look, I've given this supreme pursuit. And the words that he uses here, two of them up front, I seek and I explore. But he begins by making this statement. It's translated NAS, and I set my mind, literally as I set my heart. But if we understand the Hebrew mentality of things, the heart was the seat of one's thoughts and reasoning and so on. So this is is a, a, not a valid translation, it's a valid interpretation, and there is accurateness to it. The fact that he is going to talk about the fact that he is not merely giving us something of subjective emotional reaction to things. This is well thought out, this is enlightened, this is reasonable. So if I come at this world from the standpoint of being completely earthbound and I think through all of these things as a very enlightened and knowledgeable man and I use my reason, these are the things that I come to. This was not only a, a, a thorough pursuit that he made, but it was comprehensive. Notice the two words that he uses here for seek and to explore. The first one deals with investigation, the roots of a matter. And it deals with a serious research. In other words, there was painstaking work done by Solomon in the process of this. Not only that, but he says, I explored, I examined all sides. This wasn't something that Solomon did haphazardly. He says, look, I was all in on this thing. I searched everything through and through and all of the facts and everything that I can garner from the world, sending my ships out to bring all of these things back so I can answer these questions and wrestle with these things, these conundrums of life, these enigmas. This is what I did. And not only that, but it was unconstrained pursuit. Notice he says, concerning all that has been done under heaven. And not only that, but this is a frustrating task, he says. In verse 13, he finishes, it is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. This is not easy. This was a burden to me. I find it interesting that this is his outcome before he moves to tell us that it is a striving after wind. He describes it as a grievous, burdensome task, verse 13. And then in verse 18, he says, because in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing in knowledge results in increasing pain. It's 
It's interesting the terminology that Solomon is going to use here as he describes this, this word task in Yon. It occurs only in Ecclesiastes. Solomon is the only one who uses it. And the term basically means busyness that is humbling. As he processed all of this stuff, this was a humbling and grievous task to him. But this was something that God has appointed to human beings. This is what he has given us to do. In other words, it is from the perspective of under the sun, this task is difficult and seemingly unrewarding. But Solomon is going to help us to understand the proper context of weighing these things in chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. He is going to set the perspective. It is a perspective of eternity. In other words, deep within each human being, God implants the urge to seek truth. But the problem is, is that we are sinful human beings and the desire results in frustration and it results in failure because we don't do it with God. We seek to understand things on our own rather than through the lens of God. And Solomon helps us to understand what we need to help our neighbors understand is that you can pursue all of these avenues, whether science or history or philosophy, you're all going to come up wanting in all of these areas. And God has instilled in us this element of eternity, right? There is this inclination, this draw that we have. There is this void in us that we're trying to fill. But Solomon says, we keep trying to fill it with temporal things. And God has implanted us a desire to know truth. But that has been corrupted because we are sinful beings. And therefore, without God, we cannot understand. Without God, our quest for eternity and truth is fruitless. And this is what he wants us to understand. And we need to be affirmed in this as believers, but we need to take this message to the world of unbelievers and help them to understand the futility of their ways. And the way that they are searching for truth and meaning and understanding is fraught with danger, it's fraught with frustration, and it's going to come up empty-handed. So Solomon leads us to his theory of futility. Einstein had his theory of special relativity. Solomon had his fundamental human theory, theory of futility. Everything is futile under the sun. I find it interesting that phrasing under the sun. If you look at Psalms 8, David, where does he look to gain perspective? He looks up to the heavens and the vastness of space and he sees the stars, which likely he's out in the field with the sheep as he is a shepherd and he's looking up at the night sky and he sees this vastness of space because he sees all of the stars brilliant in the sky, right? And we find this in the Old Testament, that sense of when you look up, right, you're to be in awe of the seemingly infinitude of space above us and to realize that there is a God who created all of this and he lies outside of all of that and cannot be contained within. But I find it interesting that he uses Solomon the phrasing under the sun to reflect on earthboundness. Why? If you go out on a sunny day and you look up at the sky, what do you see? You see nothing. You see the sun. You might see a few clouds, right? But we cannot see into the vastness of space until the sun is gone and the moon comes and the darkness comes and then we can see the brilliance of the sky, right? Because now we see the stars. In other words, Solomon is helping us to see the limited perspective that an earthbound person has. It's like standing outside and looking up at the sky. They don't see grandeur. It's, there's a limitation. 
In other words, there's a covering overhead and they can't see past. But with God <laughs> and His special revelation, we can see past and we can see the truth and we can understand. Solomon says this was a comprehensive investigation. Notice he says, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. This is a consistent conclusion that he comes to as he repeats the thesis of the book, All is Vanity and Striving After Wind. Solomon's exhausted search for answers meets with failure. This is his conclusion. All his wisdom and resources cannot turn up the answer to his most basic question, what is the purpose of life on this planet? There are those that we encounter in this world who are seeking to ask the same question. They want to know. They want to understand. We need to help them understand. Just as Solomon helps us to see the logical conclusion, if you try to look at this world and life without God, this is where you end up. Later he's going to take us where we're going to end up if we see God in everything and we understand everything in light of who God is. Next week, we're going to come back and look at chapter, three, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And he is going to lead us in this pathway as he takes us toward this semblance of hedonism. He's going to give himself into every kind of pleasure. And a little taste for next week. The title will be, Living It Up Will Always, Always Let You Down. Dad, would you close in a word of prayer, please?